Hi everyone, I'm Vesta Gaby from WISE, and your host for this episode of WISE Words. In this special episode, we use recordings taken during the WISE at New York event in September 2018. The theme of the event was Learning Revolutions, Creating Educational Environments for Empowerment and Inclusion. You'll hear the voices of two special guests, Jim Shelton and Rebecca Winthrop, along with some excerpts from our CEO and host, Stavros. One of our recordings took place in a very busy environment, so we do apologize in advance about the quality. Uh, You'll just have to ignore the background noise. This two-part episode will give you a macro-level view on the different challenges that we face when it comes to access and education. The first part will look at some of the different facets that contribute to inequality, and you'll actually find that some of these topics will be explored further throughout the series this year. And the second part of this episode will look at what we can do to make sure that every young person, regardless of their background, is able to go and pursue their education. One of our guests is going to give us a more global perspective, and the other is going to share a US-based perspective. So let's introduce our first guest. Jim Shelton is the former head of education at the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation, and also the former deputy secretary of the US Department of Education. Uh, He oversaw a a broad range of management, policy, and program functions. You know what's been interesting is I the first profession I ever knew I wanted to be in was uh, in education, and um, my mom actually was the one who takes me away from education because I was good at math and science, and she thought I'd have a more prosperous career in, as an engineer. And so I went off and majored in computer science and engineering, but all along the way I had been volunteering and working in youth emergency shelters. Um, and when I went back to graduate school, I knew I wanted to be in education long term, so I studied both. Um, over the course of my career, I, I had the opportunity to bounce in through in the, into business and um, and the nonprofit sector, um, and have had the opportunity to both work inside schools, opening schools, and then at a more systemic level. Whether it was helping to transform a school system or working for a foundation, and what I found through all my roles is that um, the opportunity to understand how all the sectors need to come together has been the most beneficial experience that I've had. Wow, isn't it funny how his mother initially directed him out of education, but then he somehow found himself back in the industry that he cared about. And his experience brings in all sectors together, nonprofit, for-profit, and government. Okay, so next up we have Rebecca Winthrop, Senior Fellow and Director of the Center for Universal Education at the Brookings Institution. Uh, Rebecca has extensive development and research experience in education globally. Um, I was doing environmental work uh, in college, including in Latin America, and I worked in Latin America after I graduated from college, um, and did environmental work and gender-based violence work, and I kept running up to the foundational issue that sort of one of the root causes and reasons why people were living in difficult circumstances is they weren't literate, they didn't have an education, they weren't able to navigate their way out of or negotiate their way out of the situations they were in. and education would really help. So early on, I became really passionate about this idea that every young person, every adult should be able to have an education that helps them live 
their lives in the way they want to live. It's interesting to note here how Rebecca realized early on in her life how education could be used as a tool for development. She also spent a number of years in the International Rescue Committee, shaping and growing their education portfolio. She focused her work there on conflict-affected countries, in a sense trying to protect education in those environments. The International Rescue Committee is a great organization, and I felt very lucky because I was really able to help sort of grow and shape their education portfolio, which is now very large and quite successful. And we focused primarily on, on the ed, helping to educate those uh, young people who really have the card, you know, the deck of cards stacked against them, whether they're in humanitarian emergency context, whether they're in refugee camps, whether they're internally displaced within their own countries, whether they're in early post-crisis context, whether that's a, you know, a end of a natural disaster, trying to return to normalcy in communities or end of a, end of a civil war and it's a post-conflict context and you have to rebuild, including rebuilding the education system. And a whole host of issues come up about um, you know, education for what, for whom, how you teach history, all sorts of complicated things, but really important to tackle early on. So that was a very rewarding job. That question that she poses about rebuilding and asking education for what, for whom, why is it important to ask these questions? Perhaps it's because purpose is something far more complicated than we might think. Education is entangled with every aspect of our lives, with our economy, socio-cultural contexts, with our politics. And so purpose is in fact a big question, uh, something we probably don't put enough emphasis on when trying to create access for everyone. Access is an urgent matter. More than 50% of young people in 57 out of 127 countries have not completed upper secondary school. The World Inequality Database on Education states that the powerful influence of circumstances such as wealth, gender, ethnicity, and location, over which people have little or no control over, um, but which play an important role in shaping their opportunities for education and life. I'd encourage you to actually check out their website for some great data visualizations. They draw attention to the unacceptable levels of education inequality, uh, not only across countries, but between groups within countries. Education systems, whatever they offer today, they don't offer it equally to all kids. Some kids get, get a lot more of it, and some kids get a lot less of it. And so that's sort of this idea of skills and equality. And when I talk about skills, it's really sort of competencies, capabilities, skills that, you know, that we have inequality in today's education systems. Yeah. Uh, in most countries around the world, not every country, and not every country, it's exactly 100 years, but more or less, mm -hmm. that the big idea stands. It's sort of 20 plus years now working in education in different countries around the world. Uh, and I do think that you know education isn't going to solve all problems in the world but it certainly helps um, it certainly helps if you think of you know Paulo Freire the famous Brazilian educator you know having yeah. people be able to name the world using their own words is very empowering um, and helps um, across many domains whether it's economic or um, equity or justice etc Okay, so no country is devoid of this problem of disparity. 
Well, it seems that when we provide education in different and unequal ways, we exacerbate and fuel the same problems that actually created the unequal education opportunities in the first place. For me, it all starts with the notion that one of the biggest drivers of inequality in society has been our inability to get what people, every, each person needs to thrive to them affordably. Right? Whether you think about it in terms of housing or food or, or whatever it is. Education is no, is no different. Yeah. That the, the ability to provide a really high quality education at a price that we're willing to pay on the public side or that people can afford is the differentiator for the vast majority of our students, plus what happens outside of school. And so what I've been working on is saying, look, what we know is young people have already demonstrated it's not about them. When you look at the, the work that Benjamin Bloom did with one-to-one tutors. He asked a simple question. If you gave every kid highly grammar conditions, what could they do? And he showed that he could take the average student and move from the 50th percentile to the 90th percentile. And, and so once you know that almost every kid has that potential, yeah. then it's only a question of, can you create the experiences and the environment to do that over and over again? One-to-one tutoring doesn't let you do it, but now you have a bounded problem yeah. that says, how are we going to actually crack the code on producing the reproducing those kind of experiences in these very different ways? And a lot of that's going to come down to leveraging people and technology in very different ways because we're still humans. Jim affirms the point that it's been proven if you provide the same quality and access to education to a group of people, they will show results. He alludes to the fact that we need human connection in education. At the end of the day, we're humans and we need other people. Let's explore that point, actually. Uh, given the right amount of attention and tools, each individual can thrive. But that's a prickly notion. Most places in the world can't even afford to have teachers. UNESCO estimates that 69 million new teachers are needed to get all out-of-school children into classrooms by 2030. Aside from affordability, uh, we've got to acknowledge the challenges of the role. Let's see what Rebecca thinks. A teacher's job is really, really hard. It is very hard to be a subject matter expert, an excellent pedagogue, and a coach and support and social emotional learning, yeah. you know, coach and advocate. Um, and you know, why not? Why not try to experiment with the idea of having really good subject matter experts who don't have to actually deal with the classroom management stuff, and that maybe you'll get more. Um, on the sort of uh, social-emotional learning, 21st century skills. That's a very interesting idea. So let's split the role so that we have subject matter experts, which is actually quite easy to scale, you know, if, if they're projected on a screen in real time or even from a recorded video. And then also have the mentors or coaches inside the classrooms so that they can provide face-to-face -face, uh, support and attention and what about Jim? In my, even a decade ago, I did, a, I did a study to try and figure out how do you get more of the top third of students to participate in teaching. Yeah. Um, and it turned out that I think the, at the time the starting salary needed to be, if you, you would be able to access a little more than half of them for over 50 and two thirds of them for over 60. And, and all of a sudden you go, well, why is that? 
is because people, once you meet their minimum threshold, whatever that happens to be, yeah. the vast majority of people want to be doing something meaningful and giving back, yeah. um, especially early in their lives. Yeah. Wow, so Jim points out an interesting thing here. Despite there being a low income for teachers in the US, there's still people wanting to be teachers because people want to do something meaningful in their lives. Being a teacher directly and powerfully impacts the lives of many young kids who grow up following, or in some cases rebelling, against the words of former teachers. I'm sure you've definitely got some examples from your own lives. Um, now let's go back to our point about inequality. Jim shares some points about higher education in the United States. One in the U.S. I think is an example of how we don't pay attention to the role that government can play in driving the right behaviors. Um, the U.S. for you know better part of the last century was thought, you know, was held up as a beacon on higher education, and um, and it did. We created incredible access. It was a platform for social mobility for millions and millions of people and families. Yeah. And there was a legislative process that allowed that to happen. This is post-Second World War. Post-Second World War. Uh, the GI Bill was one part of it. Land-grant institutions were a part of it. There were many, many pieces. Federal student aid was a part of it. Um, and the, all of these things did a great job of incentivizing access to uh, college. And people took advantage of it. It was just one thing people forgot to tie to it. Completion. And so what we wound up with is a system that was very good at getting people in, but there were some who were good at getting them in and not good at getting them out. And the incentive structure still rewarded people if they were good at getting them in, even the people that were graduating. And it allowed a segment of the market to develop where students were coming in, getting laid in with debt, and going out and never graduating. In some ways, worse off than when they got in. That's, it doesn't take incredible foresight to think through that completion is going to be important. We have to do a better job of that in government of thinking it all the way through to make people doing the right thing, the thing that gets rewarded. Completion seems like a crucial but mostly forgotten part about higher education. We're great at getting a lot of people in, but let's ask ourselves, why are they going there in the first place? Stavros makes an interesting point here. The other problem is that you know, we've all kind of, or the education systems, you know, have become slaves to, to academic disciplines. So right. in, in a sense, you know, middle and high school have become filtering uh, mechanisms for, you know, the next sort of generation of, of academics in, in discipline X, Y, and Z. And, and what I struggle with is, is, you know, I understand, of course we need experts, right? And we need scientists and we need, you know, lawyers and, and, and doctors. Um, and so there needs to be some kind of, you know, filtering mechanism. But then the, the bulk of people who are not going to end up as, as scientists or lawyers or, or, or doctors, how do you ensure a basic level of, of literacy in these domains, so scientific literacy, medical literacy, you know, legal, political, uh, economic literacy, you know, and, and I just, I, I don't think we're going to get there by simply continuing down the path of, of, of structuring our learning around, around academic uh, disciplines. There has to be a, a, another, another approach. 
I'm skeptical of the notion that there are a lot of unfilled jobs out there and the only solution needed is to just provide the skills needed to students. In education, we have the responsibility to give a breadth of knowledge and skills so that people are equipped for changes in economies, industries, and other aspects of our, our lives that will affect how we position ourselves uh, to create purpose and meaning and to live better lives. Basically, the school system is set up um, and, and really took hold because of the rise of universities. And it's a, it's really is a feeder and the whole design of schools um, initially was to weed people out. And, you know, we're trying, you know, there's Joel Samoff and others at Stanford keep talking about, you know, they're not dropouts. Kids are not dropouts. They're pushouts. They've been pushed out of the system, which I love. Um, and, you know, changing the idea again of, of what is our goal and what is the purpose of education? Is it yeah. every young person? person should develop the breadth of skills and competencies they need to thrive in work life and citizenship and you know guess what there's lots of ways to try to do that which you know does include um reorganizing your school day right where you do have yeah. project-based learning where different disciplines intersect around a project since we already talked about project-based learning for example it doesn't mean that you don't learn in depth you know, math or science, right? But it, you, you, you have to learn it for a purpose, a purpose which is broader than passing yeah. the test to the next grade. There's a, more, a, yeah. there's a more readily available solution in many of these cases, which yeah. is um, like labor markets are now global. Yeah. Um, and so not only can you find extraordinary talent anywhere in the world, oftentimes there's a price differential. And what about involving other sectors to help with education? I also think there's just been a lack of creativity and, um, and frankly, I'll call it frustration with trying businesses struggling to figure out how they interface with the institutions that are meant to prepare our young people. Yeah. I've talked to many CEOs who said, I tried to start a program with this college or this community college or et cetera, yeah. and not been able to get it going. And so we wind up taking what we get and then we spend money internally to train, train those people highly inefficient. Um, the, the labor market is changing so rapidly. We have the opportunity to understand better what the real competences are that people need for the jobs of today and tighten that feedback loop between post-secondary institutions and employers in a way that we could almost immediately roll the implications into instructional programs. Yeah. And we're not taking advantage of that feedback loop right now. Yeah. And the reason I emphasize that not only is for the jobs of today, but if you think about the world that we live in where whole sectors and industries, if not companies, are disappearing yeah. relatively quickly, being able to understand what competency someone has mm -hmm. and then from that be able to map to them the next best opportunity for them yeah. in the workforce, it's going to be an essential thing for us to figure out how to do. Um, and it's an incredible market opportunity for the companies that figure out how to do it but it will be the work of government to help people migrate from these jobs um, to whatever is next and so allow yeah. people to sustain themselves. Okay, so it's not as straightforward as we think. There are instances where private companies aren't getting the cooperation of institutions. So if the connection to the economy isn't quite clear cut, don't we have to go back and ask ourselves, what is the purpose of education? But in education, we do have those debates about the goal of education, you know, 
Yeah. I don't know. What, what would you say the goal of education is? Yeah, I mean, good, good question. It's actually something I'm, I'm, I'm thinking and, and, and writing about. And I think it's, well, personally, I think it's, it's, it's quite broad-based. I mean, part of it is, uh, you know, obviously to, to sort of equip, equip uh, individuals to right. be productive members of their, uh, of, of their communities. And that, you know, that includes uh, being able to, uh, to earn uh, a living. But increasingly, I'm also, you know, coming around to the view that we, we sort of need to go back to sort of this, this I call it more classical notion mm-hmm. of, um, of what it means to be educated, which really looks at the, the sort of the whole person, right? That, that yeah. it's more than just learning a useful trade or, or a, you know, a set of skills. Uh, it's about, you know, ways of thinking, ways of, of being even you know, that allow you to, to engage with other people as, as, you know, as, as a, as a peer, if you will. Right. Right. And I, I think that's also where I came out. Yeah. Um, And, but it is interesting that if you, I, I was starting to ask, I've been starting to do this when I do talks in different audiences around the world and always, even if it's kind of a closed, like-minded group, people, I ask them, you know, what do you think the goal of education is? And people have different visions, you know, from job to democracy, you know, that's different different in different countries, um, to this idea of um, whole child development, or the term I use is, I've come out where you've come out, which is, Really, what I think the goal should be is this idea of breadth of skills, and to me, that's competencies, capabilities, skills that are. Yes, you need strong academics, but you also need um, this other set of what it, of capabilities that you need to succeed in, you know, life, work, and citizenship, and yeah. that includes being able to work with other people and think critically and empathy and you know, a whole you mm-hmm. know, being able yeah. to think internally about your own actions, you know, a whole host of things. I agree. We're human after all. Learning how to be with ourselves and with others is important. And what does Jim think? The challenges that are facing us as humanity are just getting more and more complex. The ways in which we find solutions to the problems is going to always come through the next generation of and the, the, the more, every generation we find that the more people we are able to equip to join in that problem solving, the better are the solutions that we come up with, and the more unusual the places that we find the solutions. And so I think that, um, you know, Mark and Priscilla in their founding letter said that, you know, the way we will meet the challenges of the world is to let every person realize their gifts. And, um, and I, I believe that we are gonna to have to learn how to educate more and more people well in order to tackle the challenges of the world and in doing so people will um, find things that they are passionate about um, find ways to contribute that we can't even imagine today that you know my concerns about how we um, manage will ultimately come to realize compared to the opportunities that they'll create for us great the more people that have access to these tools the better our solutions will be to solve our big issues And on that note, we're going to take a quick break. We've heard some interesting points about the purpose of education and the what, but what about the how? Move on to the next episode to learn about some incredible ideas from Rebecca and Jim. Thank you very much for listening.